Before we start, I would just like to say that certain listeners may find some of the topics covered in this episode upsetting. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed, there will be useful links provided in the show notes, so please reach out for help if needed. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of once again speaking to award-winning therapist Sally Baker. We discuss family dysfunction and how intergenerational patterns can be broken. Sally talks about how her therapist journey evolved from work specialising with female clients struggling with weight loss issues to uncovering a connection to childhood abuse. We explore the damaging impact of social media, examine the plight of a whole generation of young people adversely affected by psychological and behavioural issues now surfacing post-pandemic, and learn how to practically counteract negative thought loops. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Ah, hello. Hello, Sally, and welcome. It's so fantastic to have you here. Thank you for coming to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. Fabulous. Now, um, I wanted to talk to you really um, uh, about what, as a starting point, how perception, how our perceptual programming as children influences us as we grow and as we become adults and how it influences our behaviour patterns in later life. Okay, great. So I work mainly with adults, but I'm working on things that happened to them mainly when they were children. Yeah. And adults do put together how they perceive themselves, how they think of themselves from what happened to them within their specific family structure. So families can be dysfunctional in a myriad of different ways. And it's like um, it's on a spectrum. So, you know, I'm not talking about families where one child is 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 well, maybe I am talking about scapegoating. I mean, Harry, Prince Harry, talked mm. about being scapegoated in his family, and it's not unusual for one family member to not have all the advantages offered to them that the other, that their siblings are being offered. Mm. So that's, you know, um, we're talking about that families can be dysfunctional in very many different ways. Yeah. And there can be, there are subtle ways of the undoing of a child. And that's what we've got because what with a child, it, they are blank slates. I don't do past lives and I don't do crystals, mm-hmm. but I understand that a child who is vulnerable and um, feeling disempowered raised in an environment where they are loved, honoured and adored and heard really feels as they grow into adulthood that they have traction in their lives, that they can yeah. do things and be effective. So that's called an internal locus of control. That means that this internal locus, and locus is Latin for for control, Mm. it means that they have at the core of them, solidly at the core of them, a sense of their own worth. And that's a great thing to raise a child with. Now, I never see those people who've been raised with an internal locus of control because they're out in the world having a great life, living a great life, getting on with stuff meeting adversity and have the inbuilt resilience to deal with it and just crack on. They're out there. I see the adults raised in an environment, a family structure, where they don't feel loved, honoured and adored or heard. And they have a thing called an external locus of control. 
Now, an external locus of control makes you feel that you are battered by the vagaries of life, that you have no core, no solid core at the center of you that supports you and protects you. You feel that you are just swept away by life. And what's great news for adults is that having been raised so that you have this external locus of control, which is almost like a disability, you can bring it in, you can change it. You can convert your external locus of control to an internal through work, through the therapeutic process. Mm. That's, yeah, that's that explains a lot really with, with regards to uh, adult behaviours mm. because I've always noticed, for me personally as well, I've always noticed with, with my in my life i've there are certain behaviors that i've uh exhibited in the past that i know that are that aren't serving me that aren't functional and i've done work to look at those behaviors and try and unpick what is dysfunctional about them and and i and i've because it's not really, it's not really about, I think it's funny because people kind of sometimes think this is about blame. They think it's about, they think it's about blaming their, their, their parents or blaming themselves or, or it's, or there's fault involved. And I don't think there's, I don't think that's quite right, is it? I, I think that we have, you know, we look to our parents because they are the ones that provide our, initial programming as it were and our survival. Ex- exactly our survival and our programming but they were programmed you know with certain beliefs and uh, uh, uh and that will affect their behavior and and so on and so on and so on yeah and i have clients that break intergenerational patterns yeah i find that that's the most courageous um that anyone can be is to become a detective of their own psychology to work out what the dynamic was in their family and decide I'm not passing that on to my kids. And mm-hmm. I, and it's the pain, the harm stops with me. And in, of course, in extreme cases that I work with as adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, you know, we're talking about intergenerational sexual abuse and they, they stop that. They, mm-hmm. they don't, it doesn't continue with them. They absolutely understand what's happened to them and they reject it as a paradigm, as a model. And they raise their children in a completely different way. But that's that's an extreme. But one of the early casualties of being raised in a family where you're not loved, honored, and adored is that your intuition doesn't develop. Mm. So in adulthood, you can have an underdeveloped intuition. And that's because when you're a kid, you can't afford to be having hunches and aha moments and understanding what's going on because you're powerless. So your intuition yeah. kind of shrivels and dies. It daren't, it daren't, it daren't function because it's too scary to know what's going on. Mm. Your intuition doesn't develop. Yeah. And that's one of the things in adulthood that we can work with therapeutically to get your intuition fired up because your intuition only ever works for your higher good. Well, this is it, isn't it? It's like being in survival mode, I suppose, that, that, which can trigger lots of things within the body. uh, 
at lots of uh, illnesses as well, physical conditions as well, being in this in this state of high alert the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's that connection, isn't it, between between the hormonal response that we have and this fight and flight response and how and how it affects us in our lives. We don't I think sometimes as as adults, if we if just tootling along, (laughs) you know, in our daily lives, understanding being we don't stop and go, wow, why have I been triggered by that? Why am I reacting and not responding what is going on? And I think it's those triggers, those triggers are our teachers and that they point back to the fact that when we were younger, it's something that remains unhealed from the past. It's You're absolutely right. So along with um, intuition being harmed, an early casualty, what also happens is no amount of therapy will ever stop bad things happening to us. But mm-hmm. it's the judgments we make about the stuff that happens to us. So if you, so, you know, some kids will act out and be really rebellious and really difficult and um, challenging. And other children, young children raised in environments that really don't suit them, will internalize and just say to themselves in a very quiet but persistent voice, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. If I was a better kid, then, you know, things would be happier at home or things would have worked out differently. And they take on all of the blame all of that negativity into themselves and this is and this i suppose results as as we get older in kind of unrealized potential uh people who could be doing amazing things feeling that that they're i suppose confined by the the beliefs that are about themselves which aren't true which aren't true. And it's again, it's a bit of a spectrum response because they might not be fulfilling their potential, but equally at the other end of that spectrum, that scary spectrum, Mm. they're positively self-harming. They are the ones with class A addictions. They are the ones that are are battling with alcoholism. They are the ones that, or or behavioral, you know, um, addictions around shopping or gambling, things that are, things that will undermine them, things that will cause them harm. So it's self-sabotage. Yeah, yeah. And do you and and the people who your clients who come to see you? I mean, so I know we dived we dove dived dove, I'm not sure. Um we jumped straight in uh with with talking about um this perceptual world and the of of the child and how it uh, it kind of influences behavior, but you've been how long have you been working as a therapist and oh. and do and and with with people who have with clients rather who have uh, these these issues over twenty five years, it's it's funny because um, like a lot of other therapists, uh, I've started with hypnotherapy back in the day, a long time ago, and I, I don't really use it to any kind of degree anymore. Um, I worked a lot with women who wanted to lose weight, mm. and uh, and there was a whole kind of interest around hypnosis and and weight loss and. And it's still very interesting when people say, or do you do hypnosis? Because clearly they feel that the answer is beyond them. It's not something yeah. they can tackle. So that it, immediately they're highlighting that they, they feel powerless. So women who are coming to me who have had gastric band surgery, that was it was before stomach bypass, it's what they get on the NHS now, but, but gastric bypass 
um, the banding, the gastric bypass. It's not called the gastric bypass. It's called gastric band. Gastric band. Yeah, that was the first popular NHS um, treatment. So women could get this, and then they would find ways to cheat it. So my clients would be people who'd had bariatric surgery, who had fooled it and managed to lose a lot of weight, like twenty stone, you know, fifteen stone, and then Whoa. yeah, put it all back on put it all back on and the level of shame that they had that they were carrying about their behavior and failing, feeling again a failure was what has driven them back into therapy. But what I've discovered and what they revealed through the course of the work is many, many women struggling with excess weight, with obesity, with uh, morbid obesity are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Wow. So my work shifted from that into I now work mainly with adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Wow. Yeah. And and what do you think were the what do you think were some of the primary with 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 the women who came to you first of all with issues regarding weight? What was the what amongst them, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Was was the was there anything that was kind of like a, a a common theme that pointed you towards this the the childhood sexual abuse that 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 was the um... yeah. okay. So when we look, when I look at therapeutic goals, when I look at um, therapeutic outcomes that people want, mm. I explore things like secondary gains. I ask my, I don't ask my, what are the secondary gains that you're getting from being like this or having this condition or having this set of behaviors? Because that's kind of, that's a front brain question. But we we unpeel it, we unpick it, we unfurl it like layers of an onion. And one of the things about being morbidly obese is that you're not seen as a sexual person. Mm. And they learned very early on that it wasn't safe for them to be a sexual person. So hiding in plain sight and hiding in a bigger body, they felt invisible and safe from sexual exploitation, sexual interest. Yeah, yeah, protection, Protection. layers layers of of protection. And one of the things we really had to work hard on is being able to reframe, recalibrate the mind to be able to think, actually, that was then, I was six, I was two, you know, I was Mm. little and powerless. But now that I'm a full-grown woman, I have other ways that I can say no. There's other yeah. ways I can protect myself, and I don't need to maintain all of this flesh. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be so troubled. Um, but it's it's become a strategy for survival. Yeah, as we were saying, survival. Yeah, people are in. You're either in thrive or survive. Yeah, survival mode. And that's so. That's so. It's so. It, it's tragic but it's also and and i mean that not in a you know i mean that in the worst in the kind of most what the 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 most poignant sense of the word i think is what i want to yeah you know i want to say because because this excessive excessive weight and and that that it's that whole connection between power and sex because as you were saying that those people who who suffered childhood sexual abuse were probably 
I'm not saying every person who suffered childhood sexual abuse has been abused by somebody who has experienced that. But would you say that the likelihood of somebody who's experienced that, the that the abuser has probably suffered in that same way? Yeah. I, I, no? I don't I don't see it. And no. through the work, I don't really see it. It's a set of circumstances and a set of opportunities that might make a child vulnerable to being exploited. Mm. And what is interesting about child sexual abuse is that very little of it is violent rape. You know, most of it is attention. So children who are desperate for attention, desperate for input from an adult, will be very vulnerable to being groomed. And grooming mm. is is another word for grooming is seduction. So children are seduced by attention. And mm. it can and seducers, groomers, paedophiles, abusers would spend months, could be years, priming a child, preparing a child. And the child would never know. Yeah. So we have so which makes childhood sexual abuse complex because sometimes it's even pleasurable for the child. Never, it never makes it okay. It's mm. always about a massive imbalance of power. It's always abuse, but we need to break down the model that the that they are there are rampaging monsters out there who are strangers who will mm. rape a child. These tend to be people we know. These mm. tend to be people within our family or in our friendship group. Do you think? Do you think that because we hear about this a lot? Do you think that? It, that because we hear about this a lot, it's become more prevalent because of pornography, perhaps. Or do you think that it's always been happening, but it's just people are reporting this more, or it's being discovered more, or uncovered more? What would you? What's your opinion on that? I think it was has always been there. Mm. To the extent remember. of well, to the extent. I mean. We've got industrialized abuse of children online now, haven't we? Mm. We've got mm. there are huge systems in place. This is mega buck business, the abuse of children. But on on the familial, on the family scale, it's it's always been around. I think, mm. mm-hmm. yeah, and it's and it's about a power imbalance. Yeah, yeah, and mm. and how when people come to you. Mm. How do they? Because this is this is the main uh, kind of area that you're working in. The main uh, area that you're working with with people who have suffered childhood sexual abuse. Um, do they? How long does it sort of? I mean, I suppose how long is a piece of string, and it it, it depends on the individual. But mm. um, are there? How how does it? How do you? How does it unravel? How do how do you assist people in moving through what was obviously? I mean, the first thing, obviously, the 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 fact that they've come to you in the first instance is massive. Yeah, because they're decades. Oh God, that would be unusual for it it to be. You know, 20 years, 30, 40, the oldest woman client I had was 68, and she was disclosing for the first time mm-hmm. that her father had, had raped her when she was six. So at 68, and she'd, she'd carried that all over her life. 
Wow. So very tough. Um, and sometimes it comes out as a secondary. People might present with high social anxiety or a lot of class A drug use, alcoholism, um, something that they are really struggling to cope with. And mm. I don't, I don't, I don't have to. They, when they're ready, they will disclose to me mm. that this. Oh, by the way, this happened, mm. and it and it might come quite a long way into the process because mm. mm. I have to feel safe and comfortable and um and that they're going to be heard. They may well have tried to disclose. The idea that people don't disclose when they're children is probably not true. Children try and disclose all the time, but they don't mm -hmm. have the language. They don't understand what's happening or the scenarios, the risk of, to their survival, again, is so great mm -hmm. that they are just silent. They're also coerced. There's a lot of coercion mm -hmm. about, around cruelty to pets, what, uh, what might happen to siblings, what might happen to their friendship group if, if, they, if they disclose, if this behavior isn't allowed to continue. There's a lot yeah. of really outrageous behaviour that goes on yeah. to make children complicit. That's it. That that yeah, making making children afraid of consequences if yeah. they if they tell the truth. And then the children feel that they're it's their fault that they haven't spoken out. And then they feel oh, another layer of guilt if they've had some sexual pleasure, some semantic physiological pleasure from the experience and that's mm. just your body just reacting just the way you change a little boy's nappy a baby boy's nappy then he'll you know the cool air reaches his penis and he'll have an erection mm. it doesn't mean he's aroused it means that physiologically he's just having yeah. a natural reaction yeah yeah same things happen with little girls differently but with little girls too yes it's it's such a, a sensitive and um, deeply. I, I think it's it's such a sensitive topic because I, I in another episode I talked to somebody about we were having a conversation about uh, sex and and young men uh, and talking about why there was not really anything out there for young men between the ages of 16 to 22. And that's in another one of my episodes. And we talked about, and he's written a book, a, a guide for young men. Um, and there's so much societal, the societal's uh, attitude towards speaking about sex is so, we're so, we're so repressed Scene, there's so much of it's a weird paradox, isn't there? Because there's this huge amount of sex that we see. Everything is sexualized, mm. uh, and we see and we see so much that, that and there's so much pornography that's available at the click of a mouse. And yet, again, when it comes to conversations about sexual experience. They they are shrouded in shame and in guilt and in uh, and in in silence silence yeah mm. yeah or people laugh things off or they subvert it you know it's the it's the culture of the banter banter culture with young men yeah which yeah. S subverts and then sidelines 
so they don't have to speak about it. Why? What what are your thoughts? uh, Subverts authenticity and intimacy. Mm. And the the Love Island thing about banter, they always say, uh, the girls always say, oh, after someone who's, you know, they always want someone who's six foot two and and really good at banter. What is banter other than superficial nothingness? Yeah. Joshing and joking and, but nothing personal, nothing um, exposing, nothing authentic. I think it's tragic. Yeah. Really tragic. It is. And you, and you have quite a lot of experience with the, the Love Island, uh, the Love Island I, uh, crew, fan. I suppose. I yeah, suppose, yeah. 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 So I've been commenting in the media on Love Island for very many series now. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, yeah. I think it's fascinating. I think it's like watching, all the things that would happen often in secret in private unfolding in our front rooms while we're sitting on the sofa. And I think anyone who's a mother of 14 year olds should be have those kids on the sofa with them and go, what just happened there? Cause we'll see it all. We'll see betrayal. We'll see, we'll see fidelity. We'll see, you know, the whole gamut of, of emotions is there played out for us. I, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day and, and I said, Love Island, I haven't watched it for a very, very long time. I said, Love Island is like a Greek tragedy because mm. you do, as you said, you go through these these huge emotions and the huge and betrayal is the, you know, seems to be the most addictive emotion that for us as viewers, oh, yeah. um, uh, watching this pain. Uh, in front of us yeah, yeah watching it unfold in front of us so i think what we'll have to do is uh in another episode to have a conversation a more in-depth conversation about love island and um and social media because i think it's so it's they're so intertwined this 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 idea that we have to bear everything and yet we're not really bearing anything and it's all in the illusion yeah yeah, our perception. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Our perception. But, um, coming back to the pornographic trope. So, you know, the, you're right, the pornography is everywhere. But we have to also look at how it's countered. So many young women read romantic fiction. It's a mm. huge market, massive market. And I have a sense that romantic fiction and the things that that sets up in women, their expectation. Um, the false expectation, a bit like the false promises that pornography mm. offers, they're as damaging as porn. Yeah, yeah. The reality yeah. somehow lost. No one has any experience of reality anymore. If you're looking to Love Island to, to for life lessons, then you'll be stymied, and that'll be a that'll be a tough learning curve. And then, if, but if you're looking to pornography to find out what sex is going to be like for you in your real life, that's going to be a bit of a letdown too. Yeah, yeah. It has it. I think it has pornography and and social media are very closely intertwined, um, and I think that that we see we 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 will see more and more and more of people uh, things that things that like twenty years ago you would never you kind of would never have seen or or if you'd seen you would have been incredibly shocked now mm-hmm. we're seeing things on the screen where you don't even blink an eye you know it's 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 we're turning into kind of a black mirror kind of yeah. society truth you know fiction truth is stranger than fiction 
but but we are seeing those things presented in front of us and i think it'll take a period of a period of time because i so i'm was born in the 50s and that was a period of great shame and secret keeping mm. and you know my, my mother would say to me don't t- don't tell anyone our business our business is our business and so there was no disclosure and then we had Princess Diana's death and the whole world became obsessed with disclosing and sharing mm. of grief and and, we're, and we've gone through various stages. The door is what kicked wide open now. Mm. But I think there'll be a, a period of recalibration and it will happen around social media because social media is not benign. Mm. And having TikTok and Snapchat in your daughter's bedroom from the age of 11, it's not benign. And parents need to kind of come to grips with because I also work a lot with young people mm. and seeing the impact on on self-worth and self-value that social media's lies and um, veil of, you know, smoke and mirrors has on, on young people who believe that this is reality and that they have to judge themselves against these people on social media is, is challenging. Mm. And it undermines young people's mental health. How does and and how does that manifest with young people in their mental health? Because this is another group that you work with. Is that correct? Yes, so social anxiety, a lot of social anxiety, enhanced and um, worsened, of course, by COVID. But if you're currently fourteen to sixteen and you live through the pandemic, you had a really, really rough time. Mm. Lots of people say, oh, I had JOMO and I had the joy of missing out. I had a fabulous time in lockdown. Those are older people, more established mm. people. Mm. But kids who should have been going out and mixing with their mates and having a good time and experimenting and all that stuff, who were trapped inside, they've really, they haven't recovered. They Most of them haven't recovered. Well, that must have created a lot, an immense amount of fear because the the, the fear in adults that was immense and the whole thing yeah. about killing your grandma oh god and when that hit the again media. again more guilt more guilt more guilt more shame you can't do this so so the 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 perception i suppose of of those of those teenagers about the world that they are living in uh that it's something to be it is heightened i suppose because it's something to be really really fearful of you know, yeah. it's it's fearful. You know, it's it's tough enough as it is without that extra layer, yes, of fear and um and uh I suppose uh, reticence to to step out and do anything because you'll and be unfairness. punished. Sorry, there's a huge amount of unfairness. They they feel yeah. that things are unfair. Yeah. Students that went to university during the pandemic and couldn't study and couldn't have the whole kind of student life experience, but were still charged extortionate amounts for their accommodation. But it was still, you know, all of that and still came out of it. They got their degrees posted to them and they probably, I don't know, did their exams on Zoom, I guess. But they were, it was stolen from them. Mm-hmm. And it's stolen from them at a really right, fertile time in their lives. And it takes a huge amount of resilience to, grab back your life and make your life big again. And, and there are very many people in their 30s and 40s whose life is still small compared to what it was pre-pandemic. You know, a lot of us haven't stepped back up to our big lives that we had. And, mm. and kids kids are really struggling. Young people are really struggling. Do you think we'll really see the the impact of that in the next 
few years, in the next, say, five years, that, that, that we'll see um, behaviours that are... Uh, I suppose behaviors that have become more uh, common amongst people, a dysfunctional behavior that becomes more common amongst people. I do definitely. And working, um, being around safeguarding issues for children in schools and knowing how many um, parents are being um, charged with that kids won't go to school, the kids are refusing next, just adamantly won't go to school. And then the parents are held legally responsible for the, uh, non-admission, non-admission, non-attendance. Mm. Um, and those figures are off the scale. <gasps> and is this, and so what age are these from, from primary school well, children to secondary well, school? 10, 10 through, and I've, I've worked with lots of students um, who were struggling with things like emetophobia or social anxiety that stop. Emetophobia is when you're, is a, is a fear of throwing up. But a fear of throwing up sounds like, oh, a fear of throwing up. But it affects, it affects, means that you can't eat out. It means you can't, you know, you might pick up a glass in a pub and think, oh, I can't drink out of that because I don't know who else has drank out of it ever. Um, so it's, it's socially very limiting. Your mm. life becomes completely tiny and you're just terrified of throwing up unexpectedly. So you won't go on public transport. You'd never go on the underground. All of those things happen. My God, it's making the world smaller and smaller and smaller. This self-imposed, I suppose, uh, fear is yeah. creating a tiny world. That's just a tiny it's... world at a time when you should be really expansively exploring. Yeah. The world has yeah. to offer you with an optimism, with a lightness of heart. That optimism, that lightness has, has kind of gone, the pandemic burnt that away and and so and and so in your opinion you know you're saying the the pandemic burnt that away and i completely agree with you it did uh what do you think was what what have you gleaned is was the perception of those of the the people that you've been working with with regards to if they do something wrong was it a thing that if they sorry, if they go out, will they be punished? Was it is it to do with punishment? Is it to do with like massive fear? Is it to do with what's what's creating this? I know because the pandemic, we were fed a lot of information that was that was very um, deeply based, rooted in separation, making us separate, yeah, and making us very fearful of of anything and everyone um do you think do you think that has an influence what 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 are your thoughts i think it's around the idea of um the existential that you know the whole that the world is not for them that there isn't a place in the world for them i think it's that fundamental i think it's that damning that they just do not believe that the world is for them. So we see a lot of isolation, a lot of introspection, a lot of self-harm. They're not, they're not rioting. They're not, they're not angry ex to the external world. They're not flailing against um, the unfairness. They're not on the streets demonstrating. They're in bedrooms in suburbia on their own, on TikTok, on YouTube, learning how and when I've worked with young people who've self-harmed, they've learned how to do it. You you can get you can find out how to do it. It's on TikTok. It's oh on it. Oh my God. It? It's horrifying, isn't it? 
So it's I think horrifying. the message they've got being given, the message or the message they've taken on board is that the world is for them. That the world is unsafe? Yeah, unsafe. And they don't have a part in it. And then we have to re we have to reintroduce them. We have to get mm. send them on adventures and mm. and do you think them. and do you think that's also th- uh, uh, and I suppose saying that the world is unsafe and that they're not part of it that 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 they're also powerless, completely powerless. Yeah, oh, wow. a lot of felt during the pandemic, but when you are just emerging, when you're just taking your first steps out into the real world. Then and then to be knocked so resoundedly back mm. onto a back foot, then um, it's hard to recover because to build resilience, we have to be tested. And, and failure is a great way to build resilience. But yeah. we have to you know, do things, succeed at a few things, fail at a few things, get a few things wrong, It's and, and, and have lots of latitude to be able to do that, mm. be able to do that. There was none of that available to most young people when they were in lockdown. You know, we were just they were just indoors, just still in a in a sort of trapped extended childhood. Even the ones that came back from university and moved back in with their parents, uh, a lot of those people that I saw, they became completely nocturnal because they were trying to avoid their parents. (laughs) So they would only get up at ten o'clock at night when they knew their parents were getting ready to go to bed because they were just mortified that they were back living at home when they should have been out shagging and laughing and having a great time with their peers. Exactly. It's life and and, and it's being together. Mm. This is because th- that was the thing that really struck me, as I said before, this thing about separation, be afraid of everyone. They may kill you by sneezing on you, you know, yeah. and, and you're right. Young people should really be, making the most of being young because it's such a gift youth youth is such a fantastic gift and time we don't get that's the one thing that we can't get back isn't it it's true and that's the time when they should have their eyes on the horizon and their their vision should be external but it became introspective and all of this debate about will i be vegan will i only eat orange food Am I in the right body? Should I be, you know, am I trans? Am I gay? Am I lesbian? Am I what? Just all of the things that they would have discovered by doing became a complete thought process. Mm. Comes intellectualized, yeah. Intellectualized, front brain, and they become a kind of inward spiral and of worry and concern instead of just exploring and thinking to yourself, well, I'll, I'll see what I like. While I'm, while I'm out there, I'll see what appeals to me. It became an intellectual exercise. And it's and it, they made prisons for themselves. Or, yeah, or prisons were made for them from their, their circular thinking. Mm-hmm. This level of introspection wasn't healthy, isn't healthy. And do you think, and what, and okay, this is a huge question. <laughs> yes, Sally, solve this. Um, but what way out of this is there? What how can how can how can young people um get a foothold at least in into a way of stepping out of something that has that for the last two it has been hard. You're right. It has been really hard on everyone, but especially the young. Mm. You know, is there is there 
is there any way that you can uh, see that that this that it, ch- it can change that it could do things to help change the thing that saves us all and the thing we miss most about the pandemic and lockdown none of us missed things none of us pined for our stuff or i need more stuff what we pined for and longed for was human connection mm. what will save us and will save young people is human connection so if you've got kids and it's a drag having you know sleepovers but they need sleepovers they need lots of contact with their peers mm. and they don't need lots of contact with adults really they need their peers to explore mm. and develop at their own pace so I would say human connection and in real life adventures, even if it's mm. just going to the park and kicking around a football and all the rest of it, but they need to get out of those bedrooms and they need to have social access to social media limited mm. because it's not benign, it's not their friend, it's not on their side. It's another aspect of big business that is biting them on the bum. Mm. So, mm. yeah, I would say I- human connection. Human connection, and I think, I suppose with that, it comes with regaining trust. Yeah. I trusting that things will be, that things will be fine, trusting that actually people are, deep down, people are great, people are good, people want to help you, people yeah. having connections with people, uh, you know, it's not stranger danger, it's actually, it's actually having comfortable connections with people talking to people is so is so stimulating refreshing yeah. uh, and and just helps you grow doesn't it, it does and for older people to talk to younger people as well it's incredibly yeah. enriching yeah yeah to find out what's happening for younger people and how they're feeling about things so lots of intergenerational stuff and lots of human connection yeah well, time with their peers yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Lots of play, lots of play. and you know what the government did was put, try and put on lots more maths lessons. They didn't. <laughs> they never needed that. They, they, the government needed to just award them all top marks for everything because they'd have been through hell and back, mm. and not mm. not worry them about all that stuff. But of course, they did worry them about all that stuff, mm. and just um, give them lots of opportunities to play and grow. Yeah, that's what we all need. Just yeah, to grow. I have to say, yeah, the the um, uh, on uh, Sunday I went out and uh, and uh, a friend and his daughter. I went out with a friend and his daughter, and we went to the park, mm. and we just kicked a football around, and um, it brought me so much joy. I really, but I was laughing and feeling joyful, and I just thought, God, this is the secret: play, just play. Stop yeah. worrying about all this other shit. And just play, get out there. Don't judge yourself. Don't judge anybody else. Just throw yourself into into just a game. Yes, it's, and it's it's not even hippie nonsense because what we're talking about is the production of serotonin and dopamine mm. in your brain, the feel good hormones that will change your mindset. They'll change how you think and feel, and that only happens. That's twenty minutes of of, of walking, or twenty minutes of swimming, or twenty. But it takes twenty minutes. So don't go for a 15-minute walk or a 10-minute walk. Do it for 20 minutes and, you know, allow those endorphins and those that serotonin to come through and change your brain. Oh, brilliant. So this is really good advice for anybody out there. So, listeners, 
anybody yeah. out there, if you want to shift, I suppose, shift your 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 feeling um, uh, and move into a, a, a different space is to is to actually physically move into a different space, get walking or yeah. swimming or exercising uh, for 20 minutes. And 20 minutes is the magic number. It is. It, I mean, carry yeah. on after, beyond and above 20 minutes, but don't cut it short at 15. Okay. So with, um, energy, with meridian energy techniques, there's one called, you know, if you find, it's called cross crawl. If you find yourself um, in that kind of rheumative state where you're just going, people either go into two unhelpful thinking styles quite commonly. Mm. They go into the past and then they ruminate about the past. And, oh, if only I'd done this, and if only that had happened differently, and if only that had worked out like this instead of that. That's ruminating. And you can ruminate. People can ruminate for days. Mm. It's not helpful. And the other sort of way that people uh, use thinking to as unhelpful thoughts is to go into the future. And then when they future think, their future thinking becomes catastrophic. Oh, yeah. They don't go into the future and think, oh, well, it's all going to be amazing. They go into the future and think, oh, it's all going to be shit. <laughs> So what you do instead when you find yourself in one of these thought loops is you do this thing called cross-crawl, and it looks bizarre. I will explain it. So you take your right hand. You can do it when you're sitting down, yeah, and then you can move to standing up and moving around the room. Mm. So you can take your right hand and you tap it on your left knee, and then you take your left hand and you tap it on your right knee. So you're, that's a cross-crawl motion. Yeah. So you you know it takes us a little bit of – uh, concentration, which so already you're breaking the mindset, yeah. and then you start, then you take that and you walk around the room doing that. Fantastic, yeah. And, and that's... breathe and breathe. That's called cross crawl. It's a meridian energy therapy technique, and it's about using your body to change your mental state. Oh, that's fantastic! I'm going to be doing that actually after we finished. <laughs> after we finished talking, I'm going to be tapping on yeah. my tapping on my left knee and my right knee as yeah. I walk around the room oh Sally that and I think with that that's a really positive note to end on and thank you so much because it has been a hard few years um and uh but the but the, the but the joyful thing is that the future is bright <laughs> the yeah. future and it it just takes a shift in our perception and what will help with that shift in in our perception is to do something physical to change our physiology which will then change our psychology yes and will help lift us and move us forward so um yeah thank you thank oh, you thank you thank, you thank you so much for coming on and uh speaking to me <laughs> edit that bit out but thanks so much for coming and speaking to us today and um and where can where can people find you first of all can I, I i will put i will put um links to all of your social uh media and your website into the show notes but where can people if they want to contact you where can they find you and could you please repeat what your socials are Okay, so my website is called workingonthebody.com. So it's four little words all joined up, all lowercase, workingonthebody.com. And then I've got Twitter and all sorts of different things. I'm on Twitter way too much. Um, and I can give you those at the end. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Sally. And definitely, please will you join me again for another episode on uh, social media, Love Island, Harry and Meghan, 
Uh, I think that's going to be quite uh, quite exciting. Um, and also we're going to be doing a Valentine's special, aren't we? On dating. <laughs> On dating. Yes, perceptions around that. Um, so, yes. So thank you for listening, everybody. Let me just say it's it's always great to do an episode and to have you join me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, please like, please subscribe, please follow, please share, please whatever you do uh, and spread the word. And uh, I'll uh, be back next week for another episode of the Perception Podcast. Bye. Bye.